Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Nicholas Charles Tirrett Wheeler is an entrepreneur and a businessman known for producing high quality shirts for men. Since 1986, he has grown his highly successful business from a humble marketing budget of only £99 to print 5,000 leaflets and £199 for an Amstrad word processor. Charles Tirrett has grown substantially over the past 34 years and now employs a large workforce with its headquarters in London Bridge. Today, we're in conversation with Nick who studied geography at the University of Bristol to learn about how he progressed from his undergraduate studies into entrepreneurial enterprises. Um, please, can you tell us a bit about your geography background and why you were so interested in studying geography at university, where you studied it and why it's such a good subject to study? Geography was always one of my favourite subjects at school, actually. You know, geography always seemed rather fascinating. You know, it was sort of the study of the world, everything and, you know, Typically, in the early days, we'd be, you know, at school, we tended to do more physical geography and it became more human geography. And physical geography is literally studying the world. And then human geography was, you know, studying the interaction of human beings and, and you know, what makes them tick and what makes them work, you know, in the world. So it was always something that interested me. And I think that's always, um, you know, that's that's probably the most important thing. You know, if you're not interested in a subject, you're, you're never going to be either any good at it or enjoy it. So I think when I got through, uh, you know, I, I because I enjoyed it, I was quite good at it. Um, I actually thought it was going to be a, um, a good way to get into Cambridge. Um, <laughs> so I did, did geography to get into Cambridge. And then for some reason, Cambridge decided they didn't want me, um, which was a bit upsetting. Well, obviously, my geography wasn't quite as good as uh, I thought it was, um, but I but I went to Bristol and and it was a um, you know Bristol geography department was pretty good actually and I still remember you know, people like Professor Haggett I mean I don't know whether he's still uh, he was rather a famous geographer he went from Cambridge to Bristol but uh, you know there were a number of, of lecturers there who were who were really quite amazing human typically more human geography I did more human geography and it was a um, it was just an interesting thing to do. You know, it was broad. I always actually wanted to have my own business. And so, you know, there, there weren't really business courses you could do now, uh, then, uh, as there are now. It was, you know, courses were much more limited then. And and geography seemed a good, broad subject that I, that I enjoyed doing. And I, and I thought, you know, that it seemed like a good thing to do. So uh, having not gone into Cambridge, I, I, I went to Bristol. And can I ask... How have geographical and mathematical data skills been useful to you as an entrepreneur? Um, the things that you picked up in your geography degree, have they stood you in good stead? I think, the, I mean, as an entrepreneur, the, the, there's, a few, there's a few basic skills you need as an entrepreneur. And I think one of them is, um, is people skills. You know, you need to understand how people work and how they think and how they're going to react. And I think, you know, geography, as I said before, it's it's quite a broad subject, but it's, you know, it's very sort of multicultural. It's looking at at how human beings react with each other, how they react. You know, you you look at geopolitics, you look at geo, you know, 
it, it really, I mean, it, it all, it's amazing how many different areas of, of the world and how it works are, are, um, are studied within geography. But there is so much more to it than that. Uh, and I think understanding how people work is a real fundamental skill for, for, for an entrepreneur. Uh, and also it's, um, it is, it is a, a sort of a basic, preferably a basic love of maths. And I think people don't tend to associate geography with maths, but, you know, and actually I was, I was slightly surprised when I arrived at Bristol and suddenly found myself doing computer programming in geography. Um, and I suspect it, it's much more now than, than then. Um, but that's a, you know, I think programming is a skill that I, you know, we actually did very little of it back then, but it's a skill I'd love to have, have learned more. Uh, it's obviously become pretty fundamental to the way the world works, but just that understanding and love of maths is important as an entrepreneur. And it's just, it's quite basic math. It's just, it's just having that an intrinsic understanding for knowing whether if somebody offers you something, knowing whether it's a good or a bad deal straight away without sort of getting out your calculator and trying to work things out and slightly struggling. You know, some people just have a real mental blank with maths. You know, I'm a big believer that most most things you can do, or pretty much everything you can do if you believe in yourself and you believe you can do it. And I think maths is a is a is is particularly true with maths because so many people just say I can't do it. And as soon as your brain, as soon as you tell your brain you can't do something, you 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 can't do it. But I think um, you know if you're if you're if 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 you if you believe you can do it, you can. And and I think maths is an important part of geography and it's an important part of being an entrepreneur. It's really grown in the subject. Um, GIS and statistical geography, statistical yeah. maths has really taken off. Yeah, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit about your forays into photography, shoes and Christmas trees before you focused on shirts? Uh, yeah, that was, uh, I mean, as I said, I wanted to start my own business before I went to university. And I, and I actually had a, I, I had a photography business at school. Um, and then I decided. People sort of said, "Look, you should go and get a go and get a degree. Um, you know, it's a good thing to have. You know, people. Are, I think especially older people tend to tell younger people that they should have something to fall back on. You know, younger people just think, you know, the world is my oyster. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to conquer the world. And you, you're possibly a little bit unrealistic, but but equally, you you you've got the sort of that exuberance of youth." Um, and it's very hard to give advice to somebody whether they should go for something or whether they should go go, go for the some of the fail-safe option or the or the backup option or you know it's a it's a difficult one. But you know my father said to me I should you know I should go to university. Don't don't start a business full time. So you know I did go to university and and I think the thing about university is that you know it's amazing how many hours there are in the day. Um, you know you can do a degree. And I, I suspect that, that, you know, medicine or, or well, I, I know that medicine and engineering are slightly more full-time, full-on degrees than, than some of the more, you know, arts or, or art science subjects like geography. Um, but, you know, 24 hours in the day and you, you have a lot of time and it doesn't matter. You know, I, I always say to people, if you want to start a business, you can start a business when you've got a full-time job because... You know, most full-time jobs, you're working eight hours a day. You're you're sleeping eight hours a day, and there's another eight hours a day. You can do you can do two jobs. You can have a your proper job, and you can have your 
your your your job on the side. And it was the same with the degree. I could do my I could do my geography degree, and I could and I could start a business. So I had um, I'd been travelling on my year off. I've always loved travelling, um, and it is that sort of you know. Again, I think geography. You know, as a geographer, you're always going to have an interest in in different places. It's pretty fundamental to the subject. And so when I was traveling between school and university, I went to India and I had these shoes made up in Simla in northern India. And I, and I got back and I thought these are the best shoes I've ever had made in my life, you know, ever had in my life. And they were handmade, made to measure. Uh, they were like sort of classic Oxford shoes, handmade, made to measure, and they cost a tenner. So I thought, you know, I'm going to make a, I'm going to start a business making the best shoes in the world. So I got orders for 50 pairs of shoes. Um, and... And I thought, this is it. I'm going to be. This is this is my business. I'm going to be the best. I am going to be, you know, the world's greatest shoemaker. And I remember when the first shoe, when when the, when those shoes arrived. Well, what I'd done is I I traced around people's feet and measured around their instep and taken a few measurements and and sent them to the factory in India. And uh, what I found is that when I faxed it through, it was that old thermal fax paper, and it went through. You know, what I didn't realise is when it came out the other end, it was either coming out enormous or, or tiny and being the dimensions were completely wrong so my 50 pairs of shoes were fit thick pixies and clowns and, and and nothing in between so it was an absolute disaster and uh and that's when i thought well i'm not going to do shoes i'll do something else and, and it's today you probably call it pivoting but uh so it was a pivot and i and i just thought what can i do instead of shoes because that's shoes not going to work and i thought shirts um and off i went do you think your early work experiences that you, that you just listed are useful in um, someone's later life success? So I wonder whether you learn more from your mistakes or your your early ventures than you do later in life. I think I think life is about you're you're learning the whole way through life, and and, um, and I think that's you know that's a very important thing to remember. And I think it's a very important thing to remember that it is your failures that teach you the most. You will read books and you will read articles and you'll hear how other people have made failures and you will think, well, I'm not going to do that. I think what most human beings do is they think it's not going to happen to them. You know, they think they're different, you know, and it's it, and again, it's a sort of a thing about uh, it's probably a thing about about being young. You You think you know better. And the best way to learn is to actually make the mistake yourself rather than to read about it in a book. Because when you make it yourself, you really do you really do learn it. Um, and I think that was you know an important part for me because um, I, I I made some big mistakes, had some absolute disasters. And and I think you know the other thing is is that you also learn you know when you first you know if you're starting a business when you first start a business you end up. Well, you've got a choice, and, and and to be honest, starting a business today is slightly different. You know, when I started, as you said at the beginning, I had 99 quid, which I spent on 5,000 day five leaflets, and 199 quid on a on a on an Amstrad word processor, and and that was basically it. And and I and I did the business while I was at Bristol doing geography for two years, and then when I left Bristol, I went to Bain doing management consultancy, and I carried on the business. You know, and and carry on the business there for two years. And in those four years, the four first years, I, I did £12,000 a year in the business. So, you know, and everybody said give up, you know, but um, 
I think what you what what I was doing is that I was actually le really learning about the business, and I, and I think that was one of the great things about then. Now, people expect you to you know the first thing you do is to have the idea. The second thing you do is you go out and you raise money for an idea that hasn't even started. And and what happens with that is that you end up you're giving away half the equity before you even got off the ground. And the problem with that is as soon as you hit a blip, the people who've got the other half of the equity make you know they basically chuck you out. Um, and, and, and what I found very useful was, you know, I always decided I was going to do this for the long term. You know, people used to say you can either you can either, um, you know, have a large slice of a small pie or a small slice of a large pie. And I always said, you know, I want a large slice of a large pie. And if that takes me a long time, then uh, so be it. But but those four years at the beginning, it, it was a great four years for just for, for learning, learning everything, you know, from the real bottom up. And I think that's what some people today, when they raise a load of money, they recruit a load of people and they don't really understand every aspect of the business. You know, I know what it's like to pack a box and I know what it's like to answer the phone and I know what it's like to do the marketing and the merchandising and the buying and the finance and, you know, everything. And, and I think that's because for those four years, I was just doing everything myself. You mentioned computer programming uh, a moment ago. Uh, do you use geospatial data um, at Charles Turret? We do to a certain extent where we, um, and in particular with retail, with, with, with retail stores where we're trying to work out where where to locate stores and what's going to make a good, you know, the difference between a good store and a bad store. And I think, you know, again, talking about cliches, but, you know, people say it's location, location, location. Uh, yes. You put a store and, you know, you can, you can, you can, you know, every store will basically cost you the same amount of money to, to effectively to build. Obviously, there's a different rent and different rates, possibly. But, you know, you can end up putting a store in the wrong place and it costs you a huge amount of money. And, and it's and it's quite complicated to, to try and work out. It's not as easy as it might seem. I, I suppose, you know, you could say, well, you know, plonk a store in Oxford, Oxford Street and, and millions of people are walking past and, and, and there we go. But obviously, there's the, um, the demographics of your customer. You know, every every company has a different customer. You know, every type of customer will react to in, in, in different ways to different, um, you know, to different things. There's all sorts of, I mean, there's so many variables. And so, you know, we do try to be, and, and there are companies who specialize in, 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 in giving us that, you know, giving us the data for, for, for trying to make sure that we open stores in the right places. And we've got 43 stores now, which given, you know, COVID and the pandemic and the future of retail and the debate around that is, is an interesting one, you know. Should we be closing them? Um, should we open more? And I think it's 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 too early to too early to say. But the important thing is when we do open them, you know, the importance of getting the data right are, are, are absolutely huge. You mentioned in a recent interview that Friday used to be dress down day. Now every day is dress down day. Uh, what did you mean by that? Well, I think it's a sort of it's it's been a there's been a gradual change in what people wear to work. You know, 25 years ago, there were a lot of people in, you know, every every accountancy firm, every law firm, you know, all over the country. So I, obviously in the city in London, most offices in the West End, everybody would wear a suit and they'd wear a tie and a shirt and they'd go to work. And, and then it's been a gradual decline over that time. And it's... Um, you know, dress down Friday was a well, 
you know, a well-documented phenomenon. Um, and people would started to, and it came over from the US, people would sort of have Friday as a dress down day. And I think what's happened, and it, it was happening before the pandemic, is, is that clothing was becoming more relaxed at work. And people were saying, well, I don't need to be dressed up to do a good job, which is an interesting one, actually, because, you know, I think it, it depends who you're meeting, what you're doing. But I think, you know, the impression you make, that, that I, I, I happen to believe that first impression is really quite important. And, um, you know, and it, and it does, you know, for me, I, I'm a very much a, you know, I will decide in the first 20 seconds of meeting somebody whether I want to work with them or not. And and I've never really thought about what it is that, go, you know, that, that, that goes into that making that decision. But how they look and hold themselves is, is an important part of it. And I think that's probably true for quite a lot of people. Uh, clearly, you will have travelled a lot um, as part of your work. Why do you think it's so important to learn about people and places in other countries, as well as understanding differences across the UK? I think, well, the other country, I think the thing that can never be overemphasised is the difference between, you know, British people and American people and Japanese people and Chinese people and Indian people. You know, culture is so important, you know, and we just... And we just don't get that. And it's quite a good example of um, something that you read in. There's endless books on what to do in Japan and how to take a business card and when to look at people and not look at people. And, you know, all this sort of, you know, the etiquette of doing business. But again, it's something that generally people will slightly just, you know, people will sort of think, oh, well, you know, it can't be that bad. It's all, you know, the world is becoming much more multicultural, much more... Um, you know, it's much it's much more mixed but but i think um it's not and i think it's incredible and it's an interesting one what we found is you know we have quite a lot of stores in the us typically on the east coast well we have we have east coast store basically stores in new york new york washington and then we have non east coast and the difference between american the difference between americans in new york and and brits you know they they sort of look the same and they almost sound the same and you think they're the same but they're they're different, and then also you know Americans from the East Coast against Americans you know we've got stores in Philadelphia and Houston and and Chicago you know they, they're just very they're very different you know what they wear, how they behave, what they want to buy, and although they all look the same it's different and I think it's um, it's very important to really understand that and really do that do that research I think if you want to set up a business overseas it's very good to, to go and spend some proper time there and, and, and to understand, you know, understand how they feel about life and, and what it is that makes them tick. And, and I think, you know, that is something that, that, that you do cover in, in, in elements of human geography. Um, but, but nothing beats the actual, you know, the, the practical, the practical, you know, the, actually practically going there and doing it. We've talked a lot about India. Um, could you give us a little insight into the geography of your supply chain, the production process and the distribution of Charles Tirrett shirts? Yeah, I mean, typically we what we do is is we sell. Um, we sell. I mean, I suppose I would say this, but we sell shirts that are, I, I would you know, I, I think they're very good quality and I think they're a very good price. <laughs> um, now, the problem with doing that is that. To sell good quality at a good price, you have to be in control of the supply chain. 
you know, what a lot of companies do is they will, you know, like, you know, take Ralph Lauren. You know, a lot of people will sell Ralph Lauren products. Now, what, what happens with Ralph Lauren is that you have a number of people down the supply chain and a number of people in that chain who all take a margin. So, you know, Ralph Lauren will sell it to a wholesale, wholesale, to, you know, on it goes. So what, what we're doing is cutting cutting those people out. The problem with that is you end up with a, with a long supply chain, which in, you know, in the, in the I think the fashion world over the last five to 10 years has been all about shortening your supply chain, not holding stock, you know, being very, um, you know, getting just in time. I remember, you know, I remember just in time when I was at school, actually, it was sort of. But, um, you know, and, and, and what we tend to do is we, so, so what we used to do is we would, we'd buy our raw cotton in Egypt and, and in the this is going back a few years, in, typically in Egypt and Peru, where it's long staple Pima cotton in Peru and long staple Egyptian cotton in Egypt. And then we would ship the raw cotton to the spinning. It then goes through spinning, weaving, dyeing mills. And we do a lot of that. I some, Sometimes in Peru, so we'd buy the cotton, we'd buy the raw cotton and we'd actually ship it to the, to the spinning, weave, spinning, weaving, dyeing factories. Uh, the Egyptian cotton we'd ship to Portugal, um, which would uh, typically go by sea, and then and then obviously and then and then lorry, and um, and then it would be made up, and then it would be Egypt. We'd fly the typically fly the fly the shirt, finished shirts in Portugal. We obviously truck it in, but the whole process was quite long, you know, because you know cotton takes you know from start to finish, spinning, weaving, dyeing, it's taking about three months, and then. Then you've got to ship the finished cotton from the cotton factory to the shirt factory, and the shirt it sits in the shirt factory for about a month, depending on the volumes, depending on you know. But, and then you have and then you have the shipping shipping to us. So the whole process was you know five months from from deciding what you wanted to to getting it in. And five months is is pretty difficult when you've got a when you've got two seasons in the year. So you're buying shirts for autumn winter. It's a six month season. You have to buy everything up front. So if you suddenly find something selling really well, you've got a problem because you can't get 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 back into it. So what we tried to do is to cut. I suppose like everybody, it's about cutting those lead times down. Um, and uh, but you know we're we're um, you know we don't have you know we I mean you know if, if you're selling Ralph Lauren shirts, somebody is sitting on a, in a, in a on a warehouse with Ralph Lauren shirts sitting in the in the in the warehouse, and you just ring them up on Monday morning, and the shirts are delivered on Tuesday afternoon. Or Tuesday morning, <laughs> and so it's very easy, um, you know. But but the, but the downside is you end up paying sixty, seventy pounds a shirt um, because there's people taking it along the way. So what we're doing is getting those lead times down, and you know everybody's trying to get lead times down, and and it's not so easy. But what's tended to happen is that is that the manufacturers have tended to integrate. Um, they tend to be located close to the cotton mills, cotton fields. Um, and then they had the spinning, weaving, dyeing, finishing, and shirt factories on the same in the same place. So you know, it's, and it's pretty obvious in a way. So you've got a you know, there's less time between you know, each process for, for for travel, and and it and it cuts the whole process down. So now the process, the whole process takes about three months, which is still a long time, but but better. And um, and we ship in the finished goods, so we don't buy raw cotton. But we do it all to us, all to our spec. So um, we'll spec the 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 quality of the of the cotton, the the finishes we want on the cotton, and then obviously all the all, all the shirt specs.
but it's um so it's a shorter lead time but not you know not as short as i'd like and um you know there are people i mean someone like zara is famous for it you know zara has kept a lot of their manufacturing in spain you know literally um you know half an hour from the the, the head office up in the hills and and they make stuff and they turn it around in two weeks and people like asos uh, boohoo fast fashion you know they're turning stuff around in, in very very short lead times they're, they'll 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 manufacture you know 40 different uh products in very low low volume if, if one of them takes off bang they, they they've got huge volumes coming in in two weeks and it's a it's a different model could you tell us about any global issues that are important to charles tirrett and how those issues possibly influence some of your business decisions um I mean, there's a lot of global issues. Well, right now, there's a lot of global issues. There's uh, raw material prices are going up, which is obviously, a, that's always that's always an issue. Um, a big problem for us at the moment is is the cost of transport. Um, obviously, got problem in the sewers, which is just resolved. But but it's more the, the shortage of containers, which I don't really understand. It feels like it's a... I mean, there are stories of, of you know, th- thousands of containers being sort of stuck in Felixstowe full of PPE that's useless. Um, but it means that, you know, the shipping companies and the container companies will do, you know, any opportunity to increase the prices they will take. So right now we've got our shipping costs coming in are up, you know, seven times over what they were pre, pre-crisis. And that's a big deal because, you know, we're high volume, low margin, and, um, you know, we hope that's going to resolve itself. And similarly, you know, shipping, well, once stuff comes in here, you know, we, we ship product all around the world. Typically, it, it's it's flown because um, it's going to the end customer. And and, and airlines aren't flying. You know, we, 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 have, we, we do a lot into the US. And, um, you know, airlines are just, you know, they're, they're not flying. So it's a, uh, it's, it, you know, freight is, 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 is is probably our biggest problem at the moment. What are your corporate social responsibility goals and why did you pick them? I think there's a, um, if you've been in the business a long time and I've been in the business a long time, you start to sort of, you evolve as a business and you start to realize that some things that that you thought were important are not important and some things you didn't think were important are important. And I think it's, Probably, and actually, it'd be interesting to know whether the whole sustainability, environmental issues are more important to younger people now or older people. Because I think, you know, both, and, 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 and I, you know, because I think the attitudes of both sides have got much, you know, quite rightly become much more focused on, on, on the environmental issue and the, problem, the problems we have as a planet. Um, and I think one of the benefits of being older is that, you know, there's usually a balance between, and sometimes it, sometimes they work together, but there's usually a balance where if you want to be more sustainable, if you want to be more environmentally friendly, then it costs more money. Yes. So there's a balance between profitability and sustainability or, or yeah, environmental, environmental sustainability. But I think increasingly as the world is trying to address the problem. It's um, becoming easier to be to actually to do both, and I think one of the one of the benefits of having been in the business thirty five years is actually 
you know, all I want is I want I want the business to be what I call a great business. And a great business, that sounds a bit vague, but I want it to be a business that does the right thing. But I think if, if we do the right thing, I actually think profitability will follow naturally. Um, but what we're doing is we've joined, we joined Planet, Planet Mark, uh, which is becoming, you know, with an aim to becoming carbon neutral. Um, and, you know, actually we're, 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 you know, making big strides quite quickly. Um, I think one of the, one of the big things, you know, uh, we're doing is on our packaging where, um, you know, we used to ship stuff in cardboard boxes and actually shipping stuff in cardboard boxes is incredibly waste. It's, it's a real waste, you know, especially if you're flying by air. Um, and so what, what used to take, you know, volumetric wise, what used to take up a large space when I'm putting into small spaces. Um, but I think it's a, it's, it's, you know, I, I mean, I want to, I, you know, we want to, we want to be carbon neutral, carbon neutral, and we think we can be carbon neutral in about six years. And possibly faster. And we thought about, you know, you can you can buy carbon credits, and and I wouldn't mind doing that. Or we might do that anyway. I don't think it really counts because I think it has to come hand in hand with actually reducing your your carbon footprint. That's really interesting, and it's great to hear Charles Tirrett's aims to be carbon neutral in the next six years. Thank you very much for joining us today, Nick. Okay, great, good. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.